Namaste. A very warm welcome to this panel discussion on the book AI and the Future of Power by Sri Raji Malhotraji. Welcome, Sri Raji Malhotraji. Uh, very warm welcome to you. And I would like to quickly go to all my eminent panelists here. And uh, may I now welcome Professor R. Vaidyanathan, a former professor of finance at IM Bangalore and now the Cho Ramaswamy Chair, Professor of Public Policy at Shastra University. Uh, I'd like to welcome um, Professor Devendra Jalihal, who is the Professor of Electrical Engineering at IIT Madras. And I'd like to welcome Professor Kanchi Gopinath, who is the Professor of Computer Science at the Indian Institute of Science, Bengaluru. And of course, uh, welcome, warm welcome to all the viewers of this video. In this video, in this, uh, in this discussion, panel discussion, I'd like to specifically point out that we have three eminent veteran professors who have been deeply involved in educating and molding the views of youngsters who have been passing out through premier institutions, IIT, IAC, and IAM. So on that note, I'd like to say we are looking forward to a very interesting and a very, very uh, solid uh, panel discussion and a discussion on the on aiding the Indian Renaissance that's happening, Indic Renaissance that's happening right now, right? And Rajivji has been instrumental and pioneering in this matter for the past 25, 30 years. Rajivji, may I now request you to give a quick two-minute overview of what your book is all about and why do you think it's very important for the youth of India and the youth of the world at large? Rajivji. So thank you for this. So my book is has been the product of five years of research. Uh, and, and while doing the research, I went around trying to get a lot of people in India engaged and interested, uh, but they were not interested. And now some events are happening which are, which are predicted in the book, like this Twitter event and all that. But many, many more events that I've predicted have not yet are going to happen. Uh, the book is going to be valid for the next decade because uh, the trends it talks about, the technology and the impact of AI it talks about is just beginning to happen in India. It's already happened in a bigger way in other countries. It's beginning to happen in India and it will accelerate and become a very serious issue. So there, there, it talks about several battlegrounds, five battlegrounds uh, from what happens to jobs, what happens with China on the border using AI and drones and facial recognition and all that and giving this technology to Pakistan, which helps infiltration and helps terrorism and so forth. It also talks about the hacking of the mind and manipulating people's behavior uh, through social media, which is in a, uh, going on in a very big scale. Uh, and uh, the India is vulnerable. Uh, this is used to create uh, havoc, riots, uh, violence, uh, you know, to hack, hack elections, uh, to convert people, uh, what I call Breaking India 2.0. It also talks about the, what are the spiritual implications of people becoming more dependent on external stimuli, uh, augmented reality, uh, you know, artificial forms of pleasure and delight further and further away from uh, being in your Satchitanand mode. So our Vedant asks you to go inward and this new technology takes you outward and gives you all the substitutions of pleasure from the outside. Uh, it, 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 the book is particularly concerned about the future of India. 
basically, I'm writing as a patriotic person, as a Bharatiya, very concerned that uh, AI has not been recognized uh, for all the issues that it raises. AI is being recognized for the positive things it brings, which are enormous, and we have to be there. But we have to control the AI, not let AI, foreign-owned AI control us. Right now, the problem is not AI. The problem is that the AI we're having, the hardware, the networks, the data uh, control, uh, the algorithms are all in the hands of foreign uh, big digital companies. And we are the users and they are the producers. So they are the ones who are uh, the puppeteers and we are the puppets being pulled. So my concern is not actually, I'm not against technology. I'm a technocrat myself. I'm against the, somebody else controlling the technology and using it on us. That's the bottom line of what this book is about. Beautiful, beautiful. In fact, uh, AI as a, not a standalone technology, but as a force player, multiplier of technologies being deployed and used. So it all comes down to the implications of the application of AI by the powers that be. And that's the summary that I get to see. But then I also see something very important and interesting. You know, I'm kind of drawn back to the days of the colonization by the East India Company. You know, and I just want to take a small clip snippet from your book, which I'm holding out here. It's an important book that everybody should pick up and read, especially in India. It's a snippet that, uh, let me uh, read what you've uh, uh, written, and I quote, India seems to have forgotten its experience with East India Company. The government has failed to halt the continuous outflow of private data to foreign firms. If data represents national wealth, India is for sale. The threat to its national security and sovereignty needs to be called out. That's what you're uh, writing. I would like to now go and uh, request Professor Vaidyanathan, who has been a past member of the National Security Advisory Board of India, to share his thoughts on this one particular thing. You know, the digital colonization is like the East India Company colonization that uh, Rajiv draws upon. What's your view on this, sir? First and foremost, I would like to uh, thank and appreciate Rajivji for this, uh, I would say, phenomenal work, actually. He mentioned for the next decade, I think for the next 40, 50 years, this will have a significant amount of impact. I only wish every bureaucrat, every judge, every uh, senior army person, every politician in India go through this work. Be that as it may, most important. See, this, the concept of sovereignty, Westphalian consensus, which emerged, that individual nations have their own. Uh, I think that is gone now. There is nothing called, uh, and particularly countries like India, which have got huge amount of fault lines, this becomes much, much more critical. There is, uh, you know, and uh, the East India Company story is uh, uh, not necessarily identically getting repeated, but in a, another sense that uh, the big technology companies are replacing actually the sovereign states. It's not just only for developing countries. Any country having fault lines is going to be exploited. So the countries like China are on a different uh, footing, uh, different uh, advantage. That is what is my first uh, uh, initial reaction would be. Wonderful, wonderful. So I would like to take off from there and I want to share this thought. So one of the big things that the East India Company people did at that time and it continued to the British rule and including perhaps several decades later after we got independence was this demonization of the Indic identity. You know, Rajiv talks about the Indic identity 
uh, in a very big way. So maybe I should ask Rajivji. So Indic identity demonization, the Indian grand narrative. What is it all about, Rajiv? Why is it that, like Professor says, the bureaucrats, the army folks, the decision makers just don't have a sense of Indic civilizational identity? What to do about it? Your thoughts, Rajiv? So first of all, I think uh, you, you've touched on an interesting point because a lot of people ask me that I've done all these uh, three, three decades of work on Indian identity and Hindu thought and Vedic thought and a grand narrative and all that. So what does my book on AI have anything to do with it? Have I switched out of that? Uh, because, uh, although they recognize that AI was my original topic as a computer science graduate student, uh, but they're saying it's, uh, it seems to be disconnected. It's not disconnected uh, for the simple reason that AI today, AI today is representing Western universalism, which I talked about in my earlier books, Western universalism implicitly in the algorithms. So basically the algorithms are using the idea of justice, social justice, human rights, nature of the self, nature of the environment. All these are Western universalism ideas that are incorporated into the algorithms. And so the algorithms are trying to optimize Western universalism. That's really what it amounts to. And so it is not Vedic universalism. It is not, uh, uh, you know, Islamic universalism. I mean, actually, China is uh, using AI to expand Chinese idea of universalism, Chinese idea of society and justice and economics and, you know, all of that. So each society that has an AI system uh, is either consciously or unconsciously kind of take, building upon its own civilizational narrative, its own grand narrative, and incorporating that into the AI. And so the AI is expanding that and using that as a benchmark to decide uh, who to promote, who, who is out of line, who to block. So when, when an AI system says that person X is violating, it's according to their criteria of what constitutes a, a breach of uh, you know, good social behavior. And when AI, when the AI system promotes somebody as a good, good guy, it's according to their idea. So the lack of Indian grand narrative uh, means that, uh, firstly, we don't have AI, uh, which we control. Secondly, we don't have a grand narrative. So you know what's happened is foreign AI bringing foreign grand narratives is taking over hold of the Indian population. This is the so problem. Wonderful. So let me, let me repeat. Wonderful. For Western yeah. universalism, which is a foreign grand narrative, being incorporated into foreign-owned, uh, you know, algorithms, is taking over India. This is very serious. Very serious. Very serious. In fact, uh, I would kind of say that this is the kind of thing that we need to essentially ensure that uh, um, we need to understand. And what you brought out is very, very critical. Why we need to have our decision makers, the people in the defense, the people in the government, the people in the media, the people in the industry have skin in the game. What is the skin of the game? The game is Indic identity, and that's what is lacking. This grand Indian narrative is still not kind of widespread, perhaps. Now, let me kind of uh, quote you from a little paragraph that you talked about, about China. And I'll go to Professor Jalihal from there. China, however, has consistently defied Western attempts to demonize its government as an abusive totalitarian state. That's what you write in page uh, 120. China controls its own narrative. Its citizens' education has been built on the foundation of grand narrative of the past greatness and its future as the world's foremost superpower. It's clear that the Chinese people today, that the long-term destiny of their country's greatness has been drilled into them as a non-negotiable. This collective self-confidence is a remarkable asset. That's what you write. I'd like to go to Professor Devendra Jalihal. 
professor tell me you have been molding the character of so many youngsters and students all these years where is that grand narrative that people are where is that being molded or where is what component of it is it in your educating these youngsters or for that matter the indian education systems molding the youngsters because look at what china did they do not care for the demonization but they have been consistent about their narrative and they brought youngsters to have the self confidence to live up to that thinking your thoughts sir um you know um uh, uh, Rajiv ji talked about the west being the producer and we being the users right. uh, professor vaidyanathan talked about a fault line yeah um you know all of us are aware that for the last 3 to 4 centuries west has been studying us using various lenses whether it's protestant christianity or marxism and, and you know postmodernism and critical thought and so on and and um, they have a certain view of india right as as uh, you know uh, except for a few bright spots it's an area of darkness it's been opposed of course by from vivekananda and gandhi ji himself in hind swaraj and uh, you know many other scholars um, you know i would, I would specifically mention um, dharampal ji sitaram goel uh, uh, you know uh, i mean I, i have to bring out these names because this is a centenary year however right the western view the western image of india is what is being amplified by the indian academicians by indian bureaucrats by indian intellectuals public intellectuals media everywhere that's what we read about in the, in the newspapers that's what we read about in the uh, uh, textbooks for, for our children so what do we need to do somewhere along the line that has to change isn't it nobody has even heard about him swaraj i mean you know gandhi ji there's a statue of him everywhere but you know his ideas on the criticism of west has, uh, doesn't even make it to the textbooks and this has now become the common sense view of india i, I mean, think now contemporarily i think rajiv's works have to get into the textbooks of the students across not only india but across the world the pace of acceptance of this western view of india has only accelerated since independence right okay so unless the grand narrative that rajiv is indian talking grand about narrative. right unless it 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 uh, comes or you know, overcomes this the existing hegemonic view right okay. i am i am very uh, uh, you know uh, skeptical about whether india uh, will stand on its feet i mean unless we legitimately ask what it means to be an indian based on our own experience right, right. unless that becomes the view uh, and chinese have that view i mean chinese know what china is from their own experience we don't okay. have okay let me ask professor gopinath yeah professor gopinath chinese have their own in their own uh, narrative and their own uh, identity and the students across the board the universities across the world get to drill that into their heads day in day out what's happening in the indian context what's your view on this and what can be done about it thanks for the interesting question you're posing um actually it turns out that the uh, indic thinking actually has very interesting uh, Uh, perspectives, for example, computation as a uh, way to think about, uh, let's say, various phenomena. Because, for example, if you think about the Greek perspective, it's mostly a deductive kind of model, and uh, to think about the Indian perspective, it's mostly computational. So, I think even at a basic level, Ganita, for example, I think we have, uh, as was just mentioned, we should try to figure out a way in which this can be incorporated as a 
completely different perspective, which I think has not come out very clearly because we have been mostly uh, taking uh, the Eurocentric so, perspective of even basic so, sciences. Also. So, so what you are kind of saying in so many words, uh, Gopi, is that mm -hmm. Indian professors have not still thought through what they should do through their own lenses and how to communicate the same ideas like what the Europeans do, but from the Indic viewpoint. And that's a big problem. That has to be encouraged in a big way. I think that's what Rajiv has been doing all the while, trying to push hard for that, right? I'll just give one example to you, okay? In computer science, for example, there is a field called communitorics. Right. It turns out in the communitorics, our ancestors about in 1300, okay, Narayan Pandita, for example, did a phenomenal work. And actually, Kamut actually says that his work is about 600 years before anybody, okay, because okay, but somehow nobody knows about it. We thought he was the best computer scientist, they don't know. So in a sense, the AI phenomenon is all about computational perspectives on how to, let us say, understand data. Okay? And computation has been our strength. And we are unable to convey this to our own students. And I think this is something which has to be, which has to be somehow incorporated into our educational framework. And once we do that, I think at least in one small sense, we can actually make some yeah, Exactly. The awareness that these kinds of things have to happen is what Rajiv has been pushing across all through. Many thinkers have to rise up, each individually working hard like Rajiv and then contributing. And I just want to share a thought that Rajiv kind of writes about China, right? And Rajiv, what you write, and I quote, in the past 20 years, China has vaulted to the forefront of development in one industry after another. A prominent reason is that Chinese government made huge bets on high-risk initiatives that led to game-changing transformations, okay? As compared to that, democratic governments are less willing to take such extreme risks because failure can lead to political suicide. Rajivji, please share your thoughts. What do you mean by saying that in democracies can't thrive? So the, the thing is, uh, no, no, I, I'm, I'm just saying, I'm not saying democracies can't thrive. I'm just saying that India in particular did not make these big bets. So China bet okay. on AI a dozen years, 15 years ago, China announced that by 2025, it'll be the number one artificial intelligence country in the world. And the United States is afraid that their Chinese are likely to achieve that. Chinese invested, became the number one in solar energy. Chinese are the number one in uh, electric batteries. Uh, the lithium-ion technology, they own most of the patents and they own half the world supply of lithium. Uh, Chinese are the leaders in uh, drones. Chinese have more robots than uh, any other country. The United States and Europe probably combined have uh, you know just about as many as China alone has. So I could go one industry after another. China is neck to neck with the United States in uh, uh, quantum computing. Uh, one area China is behind and wants to catch up is semiconductors. They will catch up. It's a matter of time. So if you look at all kinds of things that... Uh, uh, you know, are the kind of uh, building blocks of this AI revolution. Uh, China has made all these bets and they've, they've done an amazing job. So, you know, we kept, uh, we, we were told that uh, a free society will produce more creativity because in a totalitarian society, you will not have creativity, but that hasn't turned out to be the case. Whatever it is, maybe we didn't use our freedom properly. Maybe we use the freedom to just go make a lot of sensations and noise and scandals and bringing each other down and uh, all this public tamasha going on in India. Maybe we, we channeled our uh, freedom and creativity in that way. And whether the 
Chinese were free or not free, who cared? The point is they produce results. If you go to any computer science conference, you go to any AI conference, you'll find that uh, Chinese and Americans are the top two presenting papers. They are, they, if you look at the facts on whose papers are referenced the, the most, Chinese universities are now sur surpassing uh, Carnegie Mellon, Stanford, and MIT, and their universities are getting more, more papers referenced than any, any other university in the world. If you look at the amount of money invested in AI, if you look at the, the uh, just the success of uh, AI, China is, is uh, China and the United States are at the top. India is nowhere. So India did not make the big bets. India has the brains. India has tremendous brains. I'm so happy that I, I come from a culture where we are very brilliant people, but these brains have not been utilized. These brains have been rented out by these outsourcing people. They hire a brain for $10,000 a year and they rent it out to some American company for $30,000 and the middlemen make a lot of money and they become billionaires and they're flying around living the good life. But the average Indian is kept below the glass ceiling. He doesn't own any equity. Okay, he's basically taught to be a service provider. So, you know, the issue is services industries are not where innovation happens. Please note this. R&D, right. R&D, R&D level is very low. Uh, and services, basically every sweeper is a service person, every waiter is a service person, every uh, clerk and a taxi driver is a service person. It's nothing to be proud of. If you've got a very large population, obviously you'll have a very large services industry. But this, these services are running on top of Western imported networks and, and uh, protocols and Western imported operating systems and AI systems and Chinese hardware. So China supplies the hardware, the United States supplies the, so, the, the, the basic, the intellectual property backbone and India provides the services. This is not the recipe for being a successful country. Whether, whether we are democratic or not, but the point is that we have our leaders have not made good policies and we are paying the price. And this is nothing to do with one government, one party or another. Consistently for a very long time, we have not had a good technological technology policy. The technology policy of India is not even on par with Taiwan or South Korea with tiny countries by comparison. So that's actually quite disgraceful. Okay, let me let me kind of uh, take uh, you, take your words uh, to Professor Vaidyanathan and ask him, technology policy is one policy, education policy another policy, right? The ability to take risks, the ability to have a grand Indian narrative, the ability to have a long-standing aspiration for the nation as, as such. Sir, where is it that Indian leadership is failing? I just wanted to know your thoughts on this. Yeah, just to add to one, one point. Yeah. After the Second World War, after huh? the war, let us be clear, USA did nuclear bombing of China, Japan. Japan. And it took something like uh, 10 years between 1945 and 1955 for USA to be recognized as the sole global power. It took 10 years. Let me repeat to you that it may take another 5 to 10 years for us to recognize China as the single global power. Oh God. US is a declining power, a society at war with itself. And what is China like? Nuclear weapon, China has got this uh, bio weapon. Let's be clear about it. No country in the world wants to even call it Chinese virus. They are all afraid of China. Let's be very clear about it. China has purchased large number of universities in US, large number of media in US, and in Europe. Nobody wants to. So that's one important point. Second is, 
India never had a, you know, our umbilical cords are tied to West. Let's be very, very clear about it. In that sense, we are not really independent. No, we are not independent at all. Actually, quite a long time before, one American colleague of mine nicely put it, he's a professor, he told, we have outsourced producing good engineers to provide service to India. He says our English, sorry, our white girls in America are not anymore interested in producing children. So what we have decided, Indian girls will produce children, bring them up in a very, very nice uh, atmosphere and school, college and the culture and other things. And then we will go and recruit them. Earlier it used to be IITs. Now many people may not even be aware. Deep into rural area colleges they have gone in taking people. If you go to US universities today, you are not just seeing IIT graduates. You are seeing graduates from far interior portion. So there is a, we never ever had any technology policy or anything. And of course the democracy everybody of you is uh, very proud of. Let me tell you very clearly, 20 families, 20 families, I can list them down from Jammu Kashmir to Tamil Nadu, are controlling the entire space of politics in the country. Oh, very unfortunate. Very unfortunate. Very important. Other than BJP and communist, all others are family controlled parties. What big democracy we are talking about? We are waiting for the next, uh, you know, the, uh, the girl to give a child so that he will become the leader. So the fault lines are phenomenal, one. Second is, many of them have got uh, illicit funds abroad which are known to international agencies. CAA knows which fellow is having how much funds. So our ability to independently take decision is very low. Right. That also is very important. So technology policy, we have outsourced that also. We have given it to others. So. Somebody told that they are going to question uh, this uh, Twitter chief and uh, I was laughing. I thought it is the other way. The, the Facebook and Twitter chiefs will come here and question our uh, leaders actually. It is not this way. You know, when they, you know, we went cringing actually all the way our prime minister goes to, you know, the place in LA to address a meeting of this uh, Facebook. And from India, one lady goes there and asks about uh, women are not given importance in India, you know. And the Twitter head comes to India. You should see that photograph, the way he sits before the Prime Minister of India, actually. He, he, he is not... Uh, and then he holds a placard that uh, our aim should be to destroy Brahminical patriarchy. Who is Jack to tell about Indian uh, uh, local situation? You know, in China, if you have he would have been thrown out of China within a matter of hours. Yeah, I agree with you that our democracy is not that really robust the way no, it is. Our technology to be. policy is decided by big technology firms. Let's be very okay. clear about it. Okay. Right? right. All others are just stands or what you call right. in Hindi what they nicely call Nuri Kusti. You know, you just appear as it. So I, I just want to take uh, this particular quote that Rajiv writes, and I want to quickly go to Rajiv. And he writes here, the US fears that China is currently developing genetic weapons for the purpose of winning a bloodless victory. The way to, ways to manipulate the psychological behavior of the population or threats specifically 
manufactured microbes to defeat an enemy without even the need to wage a conventional war, right? So this is the kind of uh, uh, bio-weaponizing the technologies that China has, and that's perhaps one of the reasons why everybody in the world is so scared. But then what should democracies do as such, and especially Indian democracy, like Professor Vaidyanathan was saying, if just 20 families control India, then that's no democracy at all. So, Rajivji, what is it that we can do to first uh, understand what we are? So, first of all, let's understand the problem. My book is to understand the problem. A sequel to this book will present my solutions, but I don't want to write about solutions until I'm convinced that a critical mass of people have understood the problem. As long as they're avoiding the problem, bypassing the problem, pretending it's not there, pretending they already got it and whatnot, I, I, I'm not motivated to proceed to the next uh, stage of solutions. Okay. I've hinted at many solutions. I'll tell you a little bit about it now, but I'm, I'm writing several sequels to this book. So, as far as, as as far as uh, the ability to uh, uh, DNA, let's talk about two levels. One is genetic and the other is psychological. There are two levels of being. Right. Uh, the the sthul sharir and the sukshma sharir, you might say. The sthul sharir is, is uh, defined by the DNA and the sukshma sharir is the emotional, mental, psychological body. Uh, both are being hacked by AI. So now, at, as far as the, the genetic level is concerned, China is, uh, China is fighting a war. China has uh, decided to uh, own the DNA of every person, every living being, every plant, every type of animal, every kind of living entity. They, they are out there trying to gather DNA of everything that exists. And this is not technologically that big a deal. Eight billion human beings and collecting all the genomes is not a tremendous amount of storage. It's just fairly straightforward. From this, they will figure out patterns of disease, patterns of resistance, uh, what kind of a thing works with what kind of ethnic groups, how to create a microbe, so how to create some kind of a virus that will only kill people of certain genetic order, uh, composition and not kill other people. So this kind of a, a very targeted, personalized, uh, you know, kind of bio warfare is uh, AI based, and that's that's the next stage. Previous bio warfare was you put out nerve gas, it'll kill everybody, it doesn't discriminate. But the new one is actually biased based on your your genome. So the genome specific solutions to problems are tremendous, and people will get a big boon in terms of better medical care because they'll be genetically based medi medical medical treatments. But the same genome based warfare. And the genome-based destruction uh, is not being talked about, but it's happening. The uh, National Public Radio, NPR, is full of these kind of interviews. US CIA is, is raising alarms. Several people I'm in touch with in the United States know about it, and they're very concerned. But in India, I'm trying to start this discussion and this discourse. It hasn't happened enough. So that is the as far as the genome level is concerned. As far as psychological level is concerned, the more you understand people's behavior, their weaknesses, their vulnerabilities, where you click, what you click, what you don't click, the more you can you can uh, manipulate them. So for instance, China is building databases even on Americans and British people and certainly Indians on you know who has financial difficulty. I mean, for instance, this uh, financial uh, credit credit rating company that uh, has the credit database of everybody in the United States and many other countries was hacked by China. And the purpose was to figure out who are the people that are in financial distress because those people can be bribed. 
Uh, they can be hired as spies. They can be given some kind of an inducement. Which are the people where people have broken? Which are the families where people are broken? They are desperate. Somebody has a mental health issue. Somebody has got an alcohol or a drug addiction. So they are looking for vulnerabilities of different kinds. They are also hacking into your Gmail and your messages to your WhatsApp and all that to figure out who's having an affair, who can be blackmailed, how they can be blackmailed. So all this is described in chapter four of this book, which is about the loss of agency, the loss of freedom, becoming morons and dumbed down with these uh, intelligent networks managing you, giving you rewards, giving you punishments, you know, and so you are at their mercy. I call this the Google Devata syndrome, the Twitter Devata, the Facebook Devata syndrome, and that is happening. So this, first of all, we must really understand the, the gravity of this situation. Our leaders have been sleeping. The National Security Agency hasn't done a darn thing. They probably know about it. I think the military people know about it because I talked to them, but they haven't done enough about it. We've started making some announcements and allocating some budgets, but between allocating a budget and actually getting results, it takes many, many years. So the problems of India are, first of all, leadership uneducated, not sufficiently aware. Uh, uh, you don't, you know, you find so many, uh, uh, so many think tanks and so many places you go, they're talking about things like, uh, uh, you know, global warming, they're talking about Dalit problems, they're talking about uh, water shortage, all kinds of things they're talking about, but they're not talking about AI. They're not talking about uh, the algorithm as a, the new Devata. So I would say the starting point for India is to, first of all, uh, understand the problem and educate our leaders. Our spiritual leaders don't know this, but there are spiritual issues that uh, the, the spiritual leaders ought to know about. So who, who in India is, is sort of taking charge of, uh, you know, the leadership? Uh, I have gone around for five years and tried to educate people, wake them up and found that uh, they were basically thinking that I'm, a, I'm kind of creating trouble for them. I'm just raising an issue they don't want to deal with. So the problem of India is that solution is there is no fertile mind open to solutions. There is no uh, people are not open enough, candid enough facing the problem and saying, OK, now let's sit down and solve it. Once that happens, I will be more than happy to do whatever it takes and make sure that we have good solutions. But right now, the climate is not there to even listen. Wonderful. So maybe I should like to take from where you are left and ask both the professors of technologies, Professor Gopinath and Professor Devendra Jalihal, how much of the awareness is there amongst your students about these? And for that matter, students across the nation, especially in the top elite institutions like the IITs, ISEs, ISERs, you know, the IMs, etc. Especially because, like uh, what Rajiv writes in this book, one active area, and I quote this, one active area of research is the modeling of human weakness and vulnerability. Machine learning systems score the likelihood of users being diverted from reading something on their screen to what needs to be read. So I just want to know, how much is the awareness amongst the people, the students and the youngsters on the implications of AI that Rajiv talks about? I think uh, uh, there is zero awareness zero at least of the issue. Yeah, uh, 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 the impact it can have. Uh, I mean, they they all today work with machine learning, you know, because uh, machine learning has come into. I mean, the students are aware of machine learning, right? So, but so they have no point. clue. That is the point. People know the technology, not know the implications of the technology. Correct. They have no clue about the social control that the algorithms sitting in Facebooks, Google, right, and Twitter. Uh, they have no clue, frankly. Right? They, they just don't have the sense of identity and who 
Indian education system is totally flawed in that sense. I mean, it doesn't okay. give them any strong sense of identity. So they have no clue. Right? I, I don't understand. You know, they don't even understand easily. Okay, Professor Gopinath, what do you have to say to this? Quickly. Okay. I think I broadly agree with what uh, Jerihal said just now. Right. I think they know about it. But uh, sadly, they are not reflected on exactly what uh, they're learning in terms of machine learning. For example, okay. there are so many uh, iniquities in our own uh, uh, society with respect to educational opportunities. Right. There's so much uh, because uh, various people are categorized as being part of this community, that community, and therefore you get this kind of benefits. You can, there's some kind of unfairness, hmm? some kind of unfairness in the system. And the thing is that the students are learning about unfairness of uh, some algorithm in some uh, context, for example, the US and some other places, but they're not able to see that the same problem exists in a more uh, dramatic and even a greater form in their own uh, society. And uh, uh, so in a sense, what's happening is that uh, uh, whatever work that's happening on fairness, for example, okay, uh, it needs to be also understood that uh, the way you are categorizing people as uh, purely based on certain markers, okay, is right. not the way it could be done. It could be something better than uh, the way it's been done. Right. And uh, you can see, for example, what has happened in Tamil Nadu, right? By right. pushing this idea of uh, uh, purely community-based perspectives and political control over these kind of models, you can see that the education system there has completely, uh, uh, I think, in my opinion, has gone for a toss. Okay? What you're saying in so many words, Professor Gopinath, is that the sociological controls that exist in the society they are totally unaware of their Indic identity and why it's important to be strategic about that, right? And why they need yeah. to have that Indic view, Indic lens to develop the society than to be pawns in the larger game of the Western society, right? I think the model that we seem to observe is a competitive model rather than a model which says that uh, you can uh, work together and share something. Yeah, let that me... particular perspective is not there. The competitive yeah. model has been so completely pressed on the system right now, especially yeah. for example, education opportunities, the yeah. way reservations, all these kind of things happen. So basically in a sense, what's happened is that the students feel that uh, they have to be just be uh, part of this game somehow, okay? rather than actually push themselves to do something better. So what you're saying is they just need to pick up skills. They need to apply the skills. Somebody else will do the decision making as to what to be applied for, where it to be applied for, how it to be applied for. Let me kind of take this uh, thing to Professor Vaidyanathan. Sir, new education policy has been announced. There's so many implications of these uh, uh, matters in terms of developing India in a much more faster way, transforming India to become a, a developed country, right? Let alone being a superpower. Rajiv has been saying it in so many words. What's your view of this? Where do you think the new education policy should really focus, especially in light of what Rajiv has been writing? No, I am not very sure about it. Your education policy will be um, what one can call change the pattern in which uh, things are taught. That's all. Nothing dramatic. See, the point is technology is considered as something apolitical, a social. This is right. very, very important. In all right. the institutions of higher learning, technology is considered as neutral. You know, it's sort of a, that's all. Right. It is. Uh, its implication for other uh, social issues, uh, civilizational issues, cultural issues are never, uh, you know, focused on anything. 
so you get a good uh, you know good grades in technology you get uh, good offers from foreign universities or some companies and other things that's all so new education policy be helpful in you know having a better type of a thing but it has again its own uh, implication because uh, we have to have also you know significant number of teachers who are well trained you know the most important component of our system is teachers and they should be adequately trained to uh, you know focus on some of these important you know major areas otherwise it will just be you know uh, the pattern is changing 10 plus uh, 2 plus 3 will be changing into a new type of pattern so, so what you are saying is all these changes seems to be cosmetic and superficial the deep issues are still not addressed especially the issues that rajin facing that addressed what one can call a grand narrative which unfortunately we don't have because uh, of course i won't say uh, uh, no others may or may not agree we have developed an anti intellectualism in this country basically good intellectuals can be teaching in universities and other thing but not decision maker this okay. is very very important because it is somehow felt intellectualism is against social justice these two things contrasted with each other so in order to enhance social justice you keep away the uh, thing about uh, next 10 year what will happen next. if you know i have been involved in some of the thing you are mentioning by say next year what will happen people smile people are interested next week what will happen next two weeks you know that is the type of a uh, approach actually so NEP is prima facie NEP is good policy. One thing I think I should tell uh, the other, you know, the other panelists. Policy-wise, we are the best in the world. Actually, I don't think any other country has such uh, levels of excellent policies. But uh, the other portion is uh, practices, execution. You know, India is the only country. You know, in chartered accounting, there is a course called uh, banking law and practice. and you note this everywhere in the world it is banking law we have banking law on practice contract law on practice taxation law on practice you know the second portion tells you about india not the first right you got the idea so so, so i understand so what you're saying is essentially that a lot of indigenization of the education has to happen and that essentially is where the grand indian narrative fits in that's one of the big things that we need to be worried about because that's a lack of it is going to create a door wide open for the digital colonization that rajiv has been talking in this book ai and the future of power